Well, I'd like to start by saying it's a real privilege to be with you all tonight. Uh, I don't get the chance to uh, preach often in my home church in York, um, probably with good reason, um, but uh, it's nice to have the chance to come and share with you. Um, I did preach here once before, two years ago, um, so either it was uh, so awful that everyone's forgotten it, um, or you've given me another chance, so thank you for that. Um, but I'd like to start today by speaking to you about hunger. I've been re- I'm into my history. I like to read about history. Uh, and I've been reading recently about uh, uh, the U.S. Marines, American servicemen, who fought against the Japanese army uh, in and around the islands in the Pacific Ocean during the Second World War. Um, and um, basically, a lot of the Marines who fought were captured and held as prisoners of war by the Japanese. Uh, now, any of you who do know your history will know uh, that conditions were particularly harsh for Japanese prisoners of war. Uh, and on the other side of the world, in Europe, we hear these almost romantic stories about how Allied soldiers escaped uh, from imprisonment in, in German prisons um, and even built up a rapport with their captors, built on mutual respect. But on the other side of the world, um, uh, in the Pacific arena, conditions were really terrible. This was partly because of Japanese culture. Uh, the Japanese uh, viewed any soldier who had allowed himself uh, to be um, um, captured uh, to be dishonorable or cowardly. So they felt justified to treat them in all sorts of horrible ways. And Japanese prisoners of war were regularly neglected, uh, starved, beaten, and humiliated. And as you read the accounts of uh, some of the men who survived this ordeal, one thing sticks out, the hunger was the worst part. One U.S. Marine said this, all we thought about was food. There was no talk of escape or violence or women. There was only food. So as human beings, we rely so much on being regularly fed and watered. It's fundamental to who we are. And the bit of teaching of Jesus that we're considering today is this. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And by preaching that, Jesus is tapping into that fundamental part of who we are as people. We need our food, we need our drink. And the first thing I want to say today is very simple. We need to be hungry in our lives for God. In the same way that those um, uh, Japanese prisoners hungered for proper sustenance, we need to hunger and thirst for God. Uh, In the Old Testament, the writer of the Psalms puts it like this. uh, In the same way that a deer pants for water, so I thirst for God. And can you hear the sense of desperation in his words? In the same way that the deer pants for water, I thirst for you, my God. One of my favorite Christian writers is the Chinese evangelist Watchman Nee. Uh, and he once said this. He said, God always loves desperate souls. So in other words, there's something about that person that is desperate for God, hungry for God, that warms God's heart. So we need to hunger and thirst for God in the same way, the same desperate way that those starving Japanese prisoners of war hungered for their food. I'm sure you'll all agree that in the past uh, few months, it's been a very interesting time in British politics. Um, and one of the, uh, the key players uh, in all the political games we've been reading about uh, is the right honourable MP for Uxbridge, Mr Boris Johnson. Uh, now, no matter what you think of Boris, he is a man who has a, a relentless desire to reach the top of British politics. 
He hasn't got there yet, but if you track his life over the last 20 to 30 years, nearly everything he has done has been aimed at reaching the top. He's hungry. He's a man hungry for power. And in the same way, we need to have a relentless hunger for God in our lives. Now, you don't know me, uh, and so it's, it, it's beholden to me to share with you that as I looked at my own life, and my own Christian faith as I prepared this message, I was ashamed at the lack of hunger for God in my heart. You know, I was talking to Ian earlier about becoming a Christian, and when I was a younger Christian, I was so fervent, I was so keen. I hung on the preacher's every word at church on Sunday. I read my Bible every day. I, everything I could get to further my faith, to help me grow my faith, I, I went for. And it's not there anymore. That's gone. And I've got to examine myself to work out why that is. But really, it's challenging words for us all. Um, we need to have a hunger for God. Uh, we're going to look at this teaching in context. We're going to consider how kind and gracious God is and how it's impossible to increase our hunger for him. But the basic message is we need to hunger and thirst after our God. Um, you're currently in the middle of a, of a series entitled Citizens of the Blessed Kingdom looking at Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, which was read out before. So right at the start of his public ministry, Jesus stands up and preaches a magnificent sermon. And he begins by announcing a series of nine truths which he wanted his followers to live by. These nine truths have been called the Beatitudes, and they're almost like a manifesto. They're a summary of the life that God wants for his people. Um, And they're very helpful for us as Christians because really they're a clear window into how Jesus wants his disciples to conduct themselves in his kingdom, in his family, in his church. So before we consider the beatitude or the truth that we're looking at today, I just want to make two general comments about this part of the scriptures which might help us as we move forward. The first is this. Living in God's kingdom is based on God's grace. It's all about God's undeserved kindness towards us. Notice the first word that Jesus uses each time. Blessed are those who who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are are the meek. Now, people who live by these principles are blessed. God showers them with his undeserved favor. We don't earn our way in God's kingdom. Now, some Bible commentators draw a parallel between these nine truths, these beatitudes, at the start of the New Testament, and the law, the Ten Commandments that Moses gave to Israel in the Old Testament. And the main key difference between the Ten Commandments and these Beatitudes is that Moses' law was conditional. God said to Israel, if you follow my commandments, which I give you this day, I will bless you. You will inherit the land. You will be my people. In contrast, Jesus' teaching here starts with grace. Blessed are those who do these things. There are still consequences to our actions in Matthew 5, but the key point is we become citizens of God's kingdom in the first place through God's kindness. It can't be earned. The Apostle Paul begins his letter to the church in Ephesus uh, with these words. He says, Let us give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for in Christ he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And that's the start of the letter. That's before he goes on to talk about how the Christians in Ephesus should act. So the Christian life begins with kindness. One Christian writer put it like this, every other religion begins with a big command to do. 
You should do these things, you shouldn't do these things. But Christianity begins with a huge declaration of done. This is what God has done for you. He's blessed you with undeserved kindness. And now you should go on and live a life that's pleasing to him. Uh, So there's still consequences to actions in in Jesus' teaching, but everything is framed in God's kindness. Consider this illustration. Um, When I was growing up in my family, I was known as the peacemaker. I had a very loving family, very happy upbringing. Uh, But like every family, there was the the fair share of of arguments and tensions and disagreements. That might have just been my family, actually, but it certainly was the case. Um, But I was known as the peacemaker. I would do anything to avoid conflict uh, and diffuse the tension. On one occasion, I apparently even fell on my sword during a game of Monopoly. Um, I threw away my property, my empire, uh, to uh, diffuse a a brewing row. Um, So I was the peacemaker. On, On occasion, it led to blessing in my family because... You know, I I didn't want to have a fight. But here's the key thing. This doesn't mean that my peacemaking qualities earned me my place in the family. If I'd then become a troublemaker overnight, I wouldn't have been kicked out of the house, I don't think. My family was God's blessing to me, and in that place of blessing, I followed God's instructions and these instructions here. And it's exactly the same in God's kingdom. God gives us our honoured place in his family, his church, his kingdom. We're in there by grace. Uh, And then we're called to live out the principles here in Matthew 5. But when we sometimes or often get it wrong, it does not mean that we're then disqualified or shut out from God's presence. So that's the first thing I want to say today is that it's all about God's grace. If you read these uh, instructions and feel daunted by them, don't be. Because your Christian life begins with his his undeserved favour towards you. The second general comment I want to make on Matthew 5 is this. In some translations, the word blessed here is translated as happy. In the Good News Bible, which I grew up reading, uh, this passage reads as follows. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who hunger and thirst, and so on. And I want to make this general observation from my life. Some of the most devoted Christians I've known have also happened to be some of the happiest people I've met. Now, it's important to say that being a Christian doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to be happy all the time. Jesus calls us to a a rewarding life, but a challenging life as well. But at the same time, sometimes you meet some Christians who seem to project the idea that to be a Christian is to be miserable. And I came across people like this when I was growing up. And it's simply not the case. Um, Before I was a student, I did a gap year with the Baptist Missionary Society, BMS. Um, And I uh, I spent six months abroad in Kosovo in Eastern Europe uh, as part of a team. We were serving the Albanian church out there and reaching out to students. Uh, And while we were there, we met another mission team from a different organization, from YWAM. So we were the, if you like, we were the the sort of goody-two-shoes, straight-laced Baptist team. Uh, This YWAM team were a little bit more wacky. Um, So we spent our time largely sat in cafes, uh, hoping that someone might come up to us and ask us about our faith, even though they didn't know who, who, who we were. Um, it's a bit like Sergeant Wilson from Dad's Army. You know, would you mind awfully coming over and asking us about our faith? In contrast, the YWAM team uh, were just completely in your face. They, believe it or not, they were actually a circus. So there were clowns and fire breathers, uh, the old elephant or two. Uh, and they went around putting these huge presentations on and very directly challenging people to turn away from their commitment to Islam, which was the, the, the prevailing religion over there, and turn to Christ. But despite our, our cultural and spiritual differences, we got on very well with this YWAM team. Uh, and I was particularly struck by this, this Belgian guy called Bram. 
Uh, and I, I'd never come across anyone like Bram before because he was 100% devoted to Christ, but so happy as well. And I'd never seen the two together. And he was no moral lightweight because one night we all got together to watch a film on the YWAM base and Bram quietly stood up and walked out because he'd made a pact with Jesus that if, if a film contained any content that was going to trouble him in his faith, he wouldn't watch it. Just to reassure you, we were actually watching Bambi. Um, but, uh, but, but, but no, but he, he, he just, you know, he was completely hardcore. In fact, in that illustration, you might say he was living out, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You know, he was completely uncompromising in his commitment to God, but he was a contented, joyful, happy man. So the two things I want to say to start with are, um, blessed are those who live by Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, and happy are those who put God first and live by the principles of his kingdom. So now I want to move on and explore, that's the TV remote, um, explore the meaning of our verse for the day. Um, Verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. First of all, what does righteousness mean? Righteousness is a word with a range of meanings in the Bible, and we're going to consider two of those meanings as we seek to unpack this verse here in Matthew 5. The first meaning of the word righteousness is as follows. It means to be right with God, to be in a good relationship with God, to be at peace with him. Jesus is teaching us that we need to hunger and thirst to be right with God. That should be our top priority. Notice how there's a natural progression in the Beatitudes in these verses. Jesus starts by talking about blessed are those who are poor in spirit. He goes on to talk about those who are humble. There's a sense of spiritual emptiness and humility at the start. You confess to God who you really are before him. And then the next step here in verse 6 is you're asking in that place of emptiness to be filled. So in summary, our verse means, happy are those who hunger and thirst to be right with God, to be at peace with God, to be in a right relationship with him. Having established this, our next question is, well, how can we get this? Um, How can we be made right with God? Uh, How do we get to this right relationship with, with God, and how is our hunger satisfied? To answer this question, I'm going to turn aside for a moment to a story that Jesus told elsewhere in the Gospels, and you can find it in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. I've got it here myself. It's not very clear on the picture, but um, there's a picture there It illustrates the parable as well. Here we go. <clears throat> so Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else... Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home righteous before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So there's that word again, righteous. Jesus concludes the parable by saying, I tell you the truth. It was the tax collector and not the Pharisee who went home righteous before God. 
Now, this parable has very serious implications for our question, which is how can we be righteous? How can we be right with God? What does it mean to be righteous before God? The parable is very provocative because, on the one hand, we have a Pharisee, a fine, upstanding member of society. He's not greedy. He's not dishonest. He's not committed adultery. He fasts two days a week and gives, uh, gives away a large proportion of his income to the poor. Now, in the minds of Jesus' listeners, and perhaps in our minds as well, surely it's him, the Pharisee, who is right with God. Surely he is the one who is righteous, because all the things he boasts about here are good and pleasing to God. Fasting, giving to the poor, being honest. Surely he's the model of how to be right with God. And then, on the other hand, we have the tax collector. He's a self-confessed sinner who can't even bring himself to stand before God in prayer. And according to the Pharisee's prayer, he's also an adulterer. Well, surely this man, the tax collector, is unrighteous. He's a man who's estranged from God, shut out from God's presence, rejected by God. And yet Jesus concludes, provocatively, astonishingly, that it's the tax collector, the stinking sinner, who goes home righteous at the end of the day and not the Pharisee. So what's going on here? Well, clearly the conclusion we draw is that people are made right with God on another basis, on some other basis other than their moral conduct. Something has happened here to mean that all the good things the Pharisee has done count for nothing. And all the bad things the tax collector has done are wiped away. I'll repeat that. Something's happened here to mean that all the good things the Pharisee did don't count for anything. And all the bad things the tax collector has done have been wiped away. Well, the answer to this problem is the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me explain. The Apostle Paul teaches in his letter to the Romans that no one is righteous. Not even one. In God's eyes, all of us have mucked up at some stage. And in Paul's words, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Some of us are good people. Some of us are bad people. But all of us fall short of God's glorious standard. I'll give you an illustration. Imagine if I said to you, uh, I've booked a coach. We're all going to get in the coach and we're going to drive to the beach. Uh, and I don't know whether the nearest beach is here, Bridlington maybe, or, or Skegness, but we're going to go, go to the beach, all of us now, and I've got a little game for us to play. We're going to go onto the beach, uh, and we're going to stand right on the water's edge, and we're going to try and jump over the North Sea to Norway. Now, some of us aren't physically very fit. I, I, I last deliberately exercised in 1998, um, so I think I'd probably, if I made a running jump at it, I could probably get into the foam, into the surf, you know. Um, Some of us are more physically fit, could probably have a good old jump uh, further out into sea, but none of us are going to get to Norway. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Some of us have great good in our lives, some of us are good people, some of us do regularly muck up more than others, but all of us fall short of the standard that God sets because the things we do wrong make us unclean before God. And at the cross, Jesus makes it possible for us to be made righteous again, to be made right with God on a different basis. As Jesus died, he paid the penalty for all those sins, all our wrongdoing, and he made it possible for us to be restored to God on a different basis, namely by accepting the sacrifice that Jesus had made for us. So the cross of Christ is the answer to our problem. We said in the parable that something has happened to mean that all the good things the Pharisee had done count for nothing, and all the bad things the tax collector had done are wiped away. Well, at the cross, Jesus wiped away all the tax collector's wrongdoing 
so that by bowing in sorrow and shame and asking for mercy, the tax collector can go home righteous. In contrast, the Pharisee is still trying to justify himself and stand before this holy God on the basis of his own good religious deeds. And in so doing, he misses out on God's free gift. Because he tries to justify himself, the Pharisee goes home empty-handed. It's not so much that the good deeds he does are worthless in themselves, but because God has a better offer for him, which he will not acknowledge. So the incredible answer to our question, how can we be made right with God, how can we become righteous, is this, we can't. It's impossible. God must do it for us. In a sense, God gives us his righteousness. It's for free. We're accepted by God on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. We can't earn it. We can't strive to achieve it. We simply need to believe it. Or to put it another way, God satisfies our hunger for himself. That's the meaning of the second part of our key verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. As you go seeking after righteousness, as you go hungering after God, he meets you and makes it clear to you that he has done everything necessary for you to be right with him. Consider this as an illustration. In our society, we tend to admire self-made men and women. Men and women who've made it to the top of their profession on their own steam, through their own efforts, through their own hard work. And, and some of us tend to loathe people who've inherited their success and wealth. So there can sometimes be a real reaction against people who have been born into privilege, uh, those who've inherited their riches. But here's the embarrassing thing. As Christians, we're like those people who've inherited our, their wealth. As Christians, we are quite literally born again, born into God's family by his grace, and we inherit and receive all his riches, all his blessings, all his goodness, entirely for free, on the basis of who we are. As we saw at the beginning, Christianity um, starts with a big done. We are saved by God's kindness, by his grace. So once again, how can I be righteous? How can we receive God's answer? We can't. We receive it for free by trusting in what God has done for us. Uh, and before we move on, I want to share a personal testimony of when this truth was made clear to me in my own life and in my own relationship with God. Because for me, I think discovering about God's grace for the first time was even more precious and significant to me than becoming a Christian in the first place. So I'll explain. It all happened to me when I was a student at York University. And make no mistake, I took full advantage of the student lifestyle. I grew my hair, ate kebabs every night, played in a rock band, watched Alan Partridge, went to bed at 4am, missed lectures, and generally lived off the stake for three years. But at the time, all was not well with my Christian faith. You see, I'd been a Christian for about four years when I went to university, and on the surface, it, it all looked good. As a young person in my home church, I'd led a, a, a youth house group. Uh, I'd started up and led a Christian union in my school. I'd done the Christian gap year, which I mentioned earlier, going to, to Kosovo. I led worship regularly, read my Bible every day. So to the untrained eye, I was a strong Christian. I had everything going for me. But in reality, the bottom had started to fall out of my faith, and I was feeling very low. And the main reason for this was simple. I'd started thinking it was all about me. I'd started thinking it was all about my response to God. On my gap year, I prided myself on my long, back-breaking prayer times every day. I prided myself on my ability to evangelize to anyone at any time. I prided myself on the fact that I, I was the most devoted. I was the most hardcore, sold-out Christian around. And inevitably, this led to burnouts. When I couldn't live up to my own high standards, I started to resent myself. 
And I felt that if I wasn't careful, I might come under God's judgment. And so by the end of my first year at university, I was in a mess. And I was seriously thinking about leaving my Christian faith behind. And it all came to head one night on campus. I went to the Christian Union there. Uh, and someone stood up and said, being a Christian is simple. You've just got to love the Lord your God with all your hearts, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. I thought, thanks for that, uh, because I can't. There's no way I can sustain that kind of love for God. Uh, there's no po- po- uh, point being a Christian anymore. And I, I'm sure I trudged back to my room on campus via the kebab house, of course, uh, feeling very low. But that night in my, in my room, God turned everything upside down. I was reading uh, a book, a Christian book a friend had given me, and suddenly I saw it. My faith isn't about what I can do for God, it's about what he's done for me. My eternal life is a free gift to be enjoyed, and everything else flows from that. Now, I really do think that was the best moment of my Christian life so far, and even more exciting than becoming a Christian in the first place. I stayed up all night, praising God in my bed, crying, singing, laughing. The next morning, I rang all my friends and bored them with what had happened. I felt like a new person. And the reason I'm sharing this story is I can see a mirror to what we've been talking about today. As a teenage Christian, I really had hungered and thirsted after God. I really did make his righteousness the main thing. But I ended up going down the wrong route, relying on the wrong means to get me there. I was trying through my own efforts to be right with God. And it led not to satisfaction, as Jesus had promised, but to despair. I'd learnt the lesson that I made right with God through what he's done for me. And once I grasped this, God satisfied me fully. I was a happier, more peaceful Christian. So the first meaning of the word righteousness is to be right with God. And we achieve this by trusting in what God has graciously done for us through Jesus. The second meaning of the word righteousness that I want to look at today, which I think is relevant to our verses in Matthew, um, is this. I think it also means doing the right thing. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he means simply, blessed are those who hunger and thirst to do what is right. Or in other words, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after justice. So this verse touches not only our faith, like where we put our trust, but also our behaviour, how we conduct ourselves as Christians. And it can sometimes be especially difficult to do the right thing when everyone around us is headed in the opposite direction. Early this year, I read the biography of the Reverend John Stott, who's the man here, who was um, an evangelical leader and uh, Church of England clergyman who did much to build and establish the evangelical movement in the country. Uh, as I looked at my PowerPoint earlier, I thought it might be a bit misleading. I'm, I'm suggesting that John Stott is the meaning of righteousness, but um, I'm not saying that. Some people would actually say that, but I'm not saying that. And reading his biography, I was particularly fascinated by one part of the, of the story um, where he'd gone against the express wishes of his family and refused to fight in World War II because he believed, from his reading of uh, the New Testament, that it was wrong to kill people. Now, in telling you this, this story, I'm not advocating pacifism necessarily. And in, um, interestingly, when John Stott grew up, he, he changed his views on, on the matter. But as a young Christian, he stuck by his beliefs and refused to go to war. His relationship with his father, which had formerly been very close, never recovered. So even though it cost him a precious family relationship, John Stott did what he believed was right, 
and pursued, pursued righteousness with everything he had. And Jesus promises us that as we hunger and thirst after righteousness, in this way, God will satisfy us. He will give us the joy that comes from having a clean conscience before him. So righteousness has two different meanings, both of which are relevant today as we look at the verse. And as we hunger and thirst after righteousness, both in our relationship with God and in our conduct in the world around us, God will meet our needs and satisfy us. I want to finish today by offering two challenges to two different sorts of people. All of us who are followers of Jesus know that it's a, it's a long journey following Jesus. There's lots of ups and downs. There's lots of peaks and troughs. Uh, and that one, you know, one year you can be flying high and really enjoying worshipping the Lord, and next year you can be really low and doubting whether he even exists. Well, that's me anyway. So I'm not saying, when I say two different sorts of people, that we're hard set in either category. What I am saying is that hopefully something I'm going to share will make sense to you in terms of where you stand at the moment in your relationship with God. So the first challenge is this. Some of us are not hungry enough. Um, as I've all I've said previously about being right with God for free, accepting his righteousness and being satisfied in God, does not mean that we stop hungering after him. The writers of the New Testament constantly call us to keep pushing forward. The Apostle Paul, uh, Peter sorry, instructs us to press on and make our calling election sure. And the writer to the Hebrews warns us not to neglect the great salvation that God has given us. So even though we're saved by God for free, we have a responsibility to nurture our faith and keep on growing in our understanding and appreciation of what God has done for us. So in a sense, this beatitude, uh, this verse, applies to everyone in the, in the room. All of us need to keep hungering and thirsting after God. Some of us are not hungry enough, and I do place myself in this category. It's easy to become complacent as Christians, um, and there's different reasons why that can happen. I've got a friend who, um, an older friend, who's, whose mum is very elderly and lives far away. Uh, and so this friend of mine has made a decision to go down most weekends and, and look after her elderly mother, which I completely respect and think is right. But, the, but the, the drawback is she's stopped going to church because she's down every Friday night to Sunday evening. And other friends of mine are worried about this. And I think when something happens in our life which is distressing, we need to try, even though it's difficult, to keep going to God. Even if it's just going to once a day and praying to him in desperation, saying, I need your help. Because when difficult things happen, it can sometimes, it can sometimes sideline us in our faith. Another reason is that we get hungry for different things. It's a bit like when I was growing up and my mum used to say, um, no, you can't have some sweets. Uh, because it's going to ruin your, ruin your appetite. My daughter is two years old, and at the moment, because I'm a school teacher, I'm on holiday, and I'm looking after her, poor kid. Um, she's got a whole summer of, of, of me sort of holding the fort together. Um, and I'm a bit weak on food, because she, do- she loves her food. So, she, you know, she'll, she'll, she'll spot some, uh, some ketchup in the fridge or something, and I just think, oh, yeah, stick a bit on your, on, on your sandwich, it'll be fine. And then my wife we, we, uh, reaps the whirlwind on the Friday. Um, but it's true that if you, if you spend your whole time snacking, you're not going to be hungry for, you, for your meal. And it's the same, it's same in spiritual terms as well. If you become hungry for other things other than Jesus, sometimes it can kind of invade and push your Christian faith to the side. So we need to make sure that you just set your priorities straight. If you really think he's the son of God, pursue him with everything you have. If you really think he is your saviour, give him your best. Um, 
I've talked several times through this talk about my gap year with BMS, and I remember the Baptist minister who was presiding over the whole program was a guy called Alan Payne. And right at the end of the... We spent a year with this group. And right at the end of the year, he, he warned us. And he said, I received lots of letters from people who've gone on the gap year and then write to him and say, the flame's gone out. You know, I've, I've gone overseas. I've done this, this amazing mission trip. I've served God. But I've, the, the flame's gone out. And my faith isn't there anymore. Now, I'm guessing from the fact that you stalwarts have come to church at four o'clock on a sunny Sunday afternoon means you're not in that category. Um, But if you are feeling that your hunger for God is dying or needs to be revived, join me in praying to God that he'll reignite the flame inside. Let's place ourselves back at the start of the Beatitudes, confess to God that we're spiritually poor, and ask him to give our hunger back. If this is you, I urge you to pray this prayer because it is so important that you keep on keeping on with God. Okay, the second challenge. Some of us are never satisfied. We have the hunger, we have the thirst, we have the passion, the desire for God, but we never allow God to come to us and satisfy us. An alternative translation to our key verse is is as follows. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. God wants us to fill us to overflowing with his Holy Spirit and all the good things he has for us. In fact, Paul commands us in Ephesians to go on being filled. So if you're trying to live your Christian life without God's love, without his peace, without his joy inside you, you're running on empty. Maybe you need to come to a place, as I did as a student, where you know that you can't do it in your own strength. You need to accept what God's done for you. Um, Returning to my favourite Christian writer, Watchman Nee, In one of his books, Nee draws a parallel between the creation story in Genesis and the story of our salvation in the New Testament. Uh, And Nee points out that um, if you look at the creation story, mankind um, was created on the sixth day after God had finished the creation. So our first experience as a human race was to enter God's rest on the seventh day. We, We arrived to find that God had done everything and we could enjoy it. And it's the same with our salvation. We've become a Christian. We realize that Jesus has done everything that's required for us to be Content, happy, filled, holy. And our first job is to sit down, rest in him and enjoy it. So if that's you today, I want to invite you to relax and and allow God to satisfy you, to fill you, to show you how much he loves you. Um, In 1646, uh, 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 the Westminster Abbey um, wrote down the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is seen as a very fundamental uh, summary of Uh, reformed um, Christian thinking. And one of the things they said in there was that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I think we're good in church at the first part, glorifying God, but sometimes we're poorer at the second part, enjoying God forever, allowing him to satisfy you, fill you, um, and love you. And that's it. I'll pray to finish. Lord, we thank you that as we approach you and we look at these truths in your scriptures, we realize what a majestic and gracious God you are. Thank you that you are both powerful, all-powerful, but also so loving and tender towards us, Lord. And as we consider these challenges today, we ask for your mercy, we ask for your help. Some of us, Lord, aren't hungry enough. We used to be more fervent, we used to be more devoted, but we know that in some way that our passion has dimmed. And Lord, for those people and for myself, I pray that you'd open our eyes again to see 
just how worth you are pursuing, Lord. Just how good you are and just how, how much there is once we uh, push into you, Lord. Some of us, Lord, won't allow you to satisfy us. We're never satisfied. Uh, we spend much of our time struggling, striving, but rarely finding that peace that you promise us so regularly in the New Testament. I pray for those people today, Lord, that you'd fill them again. They would see with new eyes, again, how much you love them, how much you've done for them in Christ. And that your desire, Lord, is for them to be filled, happy, contented, joyful in you. Amen.